A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Er zijn heel veel recepten, maar ken je het recept van een gave keuken? Je neemt wat leuke kleuren. Bezoek een kwikwinkel of kijk op kwik.nl. That was, of course... As if you needed reminding. The sound of a Danish TV kitchen commercial that I was in many years ago. Because guess what? I was the face of Danish kitchens for a while. <laughs> That was how I used to earn a living. Anyway, hello. Welcome to Patented. Uh, not a kitchen commercial, but a podcast about the history of inventions and technology from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company, as ever. Uh, we're talking about kitchens. Who invented kitchens? Which sounds like a ridiculous question, given that presumably we've been cooking as long as we've been being, as it were. So one answer is no one invented kitchens. We could probably go back to Neanderthal fire pits, looking for the very first ever kitchen. But what I mean is the idea of the modern kitchen, the fitted kitchen, it does have an origin story. And if you think about before the fitted kitchen, before it came along, kitchens were really just unplanned, disjointed spaces with a hodgepodge of different furniture, a smorgasbord, if you like, to use a, is it Danish, maybe Swedish, Danish phrase, of cookers and sinks and cupboards and, and whatnot. And then afterwards, they became carefully designed holes where everything is beautifully positioned and fits together seamlessly. And there's one kitchen and one designer that are remembered for starting this revolution. And that is the Frankfurt Kitchen, designed in 1926 by Margaret Schutt-Lehotzky. My guest today is Essie Eisterer, a historian of architecture at Princeton University in the States, who knows all there is to know about Marguerite Schutt-Lehotzky and how she gave the world the very first fitted kitchen, and by extension, my wonderful TV commercials of yore. Before we dive into this story, let me thank our listener, John, for suggesting the idea of this episode. Thank you, John, for not only suggesting this episode, but making me see if my Danish kitchen commercials exist still. And one of them does. So thank you very much for that. And don't forget, if you've got a topic that you'd like us to cover, then get in touch and we'll put the details of how to do that at the end of the show. Enjoy kitchens. <laughs> face of a famous Danish kitchen company called Fit Kitchens. I'm slightly obsessed by fitted kitchens, particularly, I don't know, mid-century modern fitted kitchens, thinking about the Charles and Ray Eames and their sort of kitchen design and things like that. There's always been something rather satisfying about them. 
And most houses have a fitted kitchen now. So when was there a first fitted kitchen? Where do we start with this? So I guess you could say that the Frankfurt kitchen designed in the late 1920s in the city of Frankfurt, Germany, would qualify as the first fitted kitchen, let's say, or in a modern sense. And was designed by Austrian architect Margarete Schütlihotsky, who really for the good half decade prior had been really invested in thinking about kitchens and the arrangement of different kitchen appliances. Sorry, you might hear some builders. I've actually got a kitchen fitter actually fitting a kitchen as we do. <laughs> I'd organised this specially, so it would just so that way add a certain je ne sais quoi to the proceedings. So what was her name again? Say her name, because it's quite a name. Margarete. Margarete Schütte-Lihotsky. And if you want to say it very fast, you can say Margarete Schütte-Lihotsky. God, you're good. <laughs> All right, we've got two. We've got a name, the Frankfurt Kitchen. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing this is a German thing. We'll come on to who she was and what the Frankfurt Kitchen is in a moment. What did people have before kitchens? <laughs> was it just kind of like... An empty room with like an open fire in it. Yeah, I know. A good question. You know, I mean, of course, if we want to go much further back, I mean, eating was always a social activity. But into the 19th century, we really kind of see a lot of changes around how societally people prepare food. Of course, with the rise of bourgeois society and divisions of labor, this also begins to fall predominantly on women. And so, and you've seen these pictures many, many times, you know, especially a lot of kitchens or spaces for the preparation of food of working class women and working class families were really quite damp, dark. I mean, think of Frederick Engels' descriptions of Manchester, for example, you know. Sorry, my Manchester listeners will be horrified. (laughs) But yes, I know what you mean. Sort of, yeah, not pleasant places to be or drudgery and etc. And unsanitary, right? And then in the realms of the upper class, you would have great ornamentation. You also know these pictures, right? Like these were ornate spaces with a lot of like tea kettles and like a lot of new appliances that had come on the market in the 19th century. But overall, you know, how these kitchens were kind of arranged was with individualized objects. You know, the stove was in one place. Maybe there was a basin somewhere else. So we can't really think of these 19th century spaces yet as what we would think of fitted kitchens now, kind of standardized spaces, right, where we kind of know automatically when we come into a kitchen where everything is. Lovely. You've given Mm -hmm. us a bit of context. So what was happening around the beginning of the 20th century that led Marguerite Schutlihotsky? Schutlihotsky. Like, what was going on? What was the zeitgeist that kind of led her to go, I know, listen, we've got to sort this out. What was it that was sort of... That was- yeah, precisely. So this is a really good question. So in the late 19th century, right, there are a lot of discussions, especially in the realm of factories, of how to arrange labor processes more efficiently. And so the big keyword of the time becomes this idea of Taylorism, introduced by Frederick Winslow Taylor, a businessman who tries to introduce insights from scientific management to increase work productivity in the factory. Is that what we would know as time and motion studies was the famous phrase, the way people move in order to make them more productive? 
certainly in the UK. Precisely. And so by the turn of the century, around 1900, a few home economists start to think about how these insights from the factory can be introduced to the domestic realm. A figure that's really important kind of in this discourse is Christine Frederick, who is today known as an author and kind of like chief home economist who introduces these ideas of Taylorism to the domestic realm. So she is kind of asking how can the studies of efficiency, these time and motion diagrams also benefit kind of the domestic labor of women. She sets up an experimenting station first in Greenlawn, New York. She's she's from Boston. Then she uh, goes to Greenlawn, New York, and then eventually sets up this Applecroft home experimenting station where she thinks about standardizing kitchens and home appliances and where there's also training how to work with standardized kitchens. She also produces famously a lot of motion and time studies for kitchens specifically. And presumably at that time as well, you're starting to get a lot of new labor-saving devices like refrigerators and new ovens and other kitchen gadgets designed to lift people out of drudgery and exactly so refrigerators are actually a little later and we'll yeah. talk about this because this is really important for the frankfurt kitchen it's actually one of the modern appliances that the frankfurt kitchen didn't have but absolutely industry is now producing also to this market and a lot of new technologies and appliances become available and in fact in this applecroft home experimenting station christine frederick tests a lot of these new devices that are coming to market. And maybe the other thing I would add here is that by 1912, Christine Frederick begins to publish the insights from these experiments in a really popular magazine in the US called Ladies Home Journal. And then in 1918, based on these multiple articles, she publishes a book that will be called The New Housekeeping. And this really has kind of explodes. By the 1920s, it's already being translated to German. So you see that this really also resonated with users. Women were reading these insights from the experiments. You know, I understand to make life easier, but what was the sort of conclusions? Was it that kind of idea of like you have the cooker here and then you have drawers here because that means the sort of triangle between fridge, cooker and sink or whatever it might be? Was it just like a kind of feng shui kitchen layout design like this is the ideal place to put things precisely that's in essence what it was these women believed that arranging cabinets and the sink and the different necessary items that every kitchen should have in kind of a functional way vis-a-vis each other would actually save labor and kind of the pathways that you have to walk in a kitchen. I'll also tell you now, in the 1980s, this theory became completely debunked. A really important uh, historian in the United States, Ruth Schwartz-Cowan, writes this book, um, More Work for a Mother, where she conclusively proves that actually the time that women saved with some of these new appliances, at least, because there's still actually a question that the pathways actually saved labor. But the appliances did save labor, but what it did 
was raise the bar on the expectation of women and what they had to do. So it suddenly meant more laundering, <laughs> more complicated <laughs> meals, you know. Ah, I see. With one problem solved, another comes along. Exactly. It giveth and it taketh away. It's funny, though, because you think about kitchens now. Of all the rooms in the house, like kitchens are so aspirational. Everything about the kitchen is kind of like you have the kind of granite worktops. And it's become this hierarchy of kitchen design and how much can you spend in your kitchen i don't know it's gone from being a place of drudgery to something entirely the opposite a sort of luxury place with all the mod cons she didn't have to worry about air fryers like where are you going to put your air fryer she didn't have to worry about stuff like that. she did not but one point that you do raise that's maybe important to dwell on for a second is that the cleanliness of these spaces was really important beginning at the turn of the century that they would be at least kind of sanitary environments. And these yeah. functional kitchens did do that. There were a lot of studies and Margarita Schutlihotsky delves into them about what types of materials, for example, poured concrete will create continuous surfaces and yes. surfaces that are easy to clean. So this mm-hmm. science was going on in America, Christine Frederick, and she was applying this idea of Taylorism, time in motion studies that was being used in factories and bringing it into the domestic setting. So Margarita Schutte-Lehotsky, Lehotsky. 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 Just tell us a little bit about who she was. Where was she born? Like, what was her kind of background? How did she get into this kind of world of kitchen design? Yeah, absolutely. So Margarete Schutlihotsky is born in 1897 in Vienna. And she would go on to lead a long life of 103 years. So she died in the year 2000. Because she had a clean kitchen, you see. That's it. Well, she also rarely cooked, I'll add here. So she grows up in Vienna. She is one of the first women to study at the Kunstgewerbeschule in Vienna, which is today the University of Applied Arts. And at the end of her studies, she already is very interested in housing for the poor, I would say, as a broad umbrella term. She's observed that the outskirts of Vienna, a lot of people are living in great poverty. Imagine this is, we're now in 1916, so this is in the midst of World War I, in really unsanitary conditions and often in shacks, really, at the edge of the city. And so her first project out of school is a competition she enters with a garden architect how to transform very small living spaces, garden or allotment huts, into more permanent housing that could be built with standardized elements. So from the beginning, she's very interested in how can kind of standardized door frames, windows, kind of leads to a better environment for people. Where was her inspiration from? I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, I think Bauhaus, obviously. What was her inspiration at the time? Like, who did she kind of grow up and study admiring in terms of design? Yeah, she was um, really cued in with a few important Austrian architects. Among them were Joseph Frank and somebody we don't often discuss in modernist discourse, Oskar Strinat. And both of them had really dedicated their lives and especially their teaching, thinking about how to create good small spaces. So we're still a little bit before the Bauhaus. You know, we're in the period of World War I. The 
Bauhaus really starts in 1919. But, and this is important, there is a title shift after World War I in that a lot of inventions really from World War I and from the front get introduced into the domestic. So especially materials that have been developed during World War I, a lot of metals, Famously, right. steel, glass, and also concrete, these become materials that architects work with. And presumably the spaces as well, you know, working in the front, you're going to be dealing with small spaces and everything being organized and standardized. Exactly. And there is um, a small transitional period, I would say, that is important for her, where she thinks about some of the ephemeral objects that were necessary inventions during World War One, like, for example, a so-called hay box, which was a little box that on a field railway could be carried to where the soldiers were stationed to keep food warm. That's something mm. that she begins to integrate in kitchens. Then by the early 1920s and especially mid-1920s, when she moves from Vienna to Frankfurt, the material production has really hit the domestic realm. So concrete, steel, different types of aluminum, they're now available broadly for the domestic. And this opens up a whole different repertoire to think about the domestic and especially for her kitchens. I should also mention that in Vienna, she already produced a small kitchen that's kind of a hybrid between the older so-called living kitchen, like a kitchen where people would have actually still gathered. You could watch the children play, but you would also have an area where you sit together. And the so-called cooking kitchen, which is really a professional space just for cooking. So from this hybrid that she creates in Vienna, she actually defines this really weird space that has a small concrete cooking kitchen and a larger living kitchen. In Frankfurt, she will lean in on the cooking kitchen as a professional domestic realm for women. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was Amy Dudley pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me for Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So she moves from Vienna to Frankfurt and this idea of the Frankfurt kitchen. Maybe you could tell us what it was and how it came to be. She's got all these ideas. She's been experimenting. So what is the Frankfurt kitchen? The Frankfurt kitchen was a two-file kitchen. So basically there are two main kind of boards, left and right. It has kind of two files, right? Two long rows of arrangements. And then a shorter file on the far end that connects these two main files. When you say two file, because I think we call runners as in a sort of row of cabinets, for example, in the kitchen, we would call a runner. When you say two file, do you mean two runners facing each other, like a kind of corridor, a galley? Yes, precisely. So there were two runners on the left-hand side and the right-hand side. And then in the center, at the far end, you would have a small workspace. And by and large today, it's considered one of the first, if not the first example of a modern fitted kitchen as we started. As we already said, it was really influenced by the studies in home economics and domestic efficiency experiments. And Schüttli Hotsky had really deeply read Christine Frederick, the German translation of her book. So the question here was, what arrangements of kitchen appliances would provide the most functional workspace for women? And so I'll just read you what we could kind of find in this kitchen. So there was a gas stove, a countertop, a cookbox that was this pre-crock pot item that keeps food warm, a fold-down ironing board, a food cupboard, a swivel stool that you could kind of carry around the kitchen if you needed to work on a different work surface, another work surface, a garbage drawer, a draining board, a sink, aluminum storage bins. This is important because it kind of signals the work with industry, a cupboard for pots and pans, a broom closet, a heater, a pullout board. So what you already see is there wasn't a refrigerator. In this sense, it wasn't a modern kitchen for us. And there are a couple of other items that are interesting to discuss. Schudlihotsky was a trickster of space in the real sense. So a lot of her inventions included these fold-down objects. So you could really maximize space. So fold down your ironing board, fold it back up like a Murphy bed. And I suppose as well, the kitchen itself becomes a little bit like a factory production line. You know, it's about economy and there's no waste. It's about keeping things clean, keeping things ordered. Exactly. One of the issues maybe that is important to think about for listeners is the moment the Frankfurt kitchen becomes implemented in 10,000 households in Frankfurt, it's actually a moment where women by and large actually had entered the labor force. So during World War I, of course, a lot of women entered factory production and into the early 1920s, although a lot of economies were quite depressed, they were still 
by and large laborers and large corporations and some white collar jobs also started emerging, as we actually see in the women we discuss, right? So the implementation of the Frankfurt Kitchen redomesticated women at a time where they actually had, you know, already exited by and large the domestic space. Mm -hmm. What was the motivation for this Frankfurt project? Like what was going on around that kind of made her design this? Margarete Schüttli-Hotzky was basically embedded in a larger network of designers who all were hired by the architect Ernst May to spearhead a large housing initiative for the city of Frankfurt, Germany. Was that because there was an increase in population or was it because the housing was bad or what was the reason in Frankfurt particularly? Yeah, so during World War I, the production of housing had completely stagnated and by 1925, a few progressive municipalities had found a way how to restructure, and this is also kind of at a moment of kind of economic uplift, find a way to draw resources to really completely rethink how cities are being built. And so it's important when we talk about the Frankfurt Kitchen to acknowledge that it's really embedded in a vast undertaking to produce housing as settlements. Also the new design of parks, gas line infrastructure, sports fields, and so on. So the motivation to design the Frankfurt Kitchen is really to bring to the domestic realm and especially the space in which people are cooking and preparing food, some of the similar insights of modernization. So new materials, also more efficient arrangements of these different elements. This kitchen becomes quite widely implemented in 10,000 households in the city of Frankfurt. And Margarete Schüttlihotzky is also a designer of a lot of the settlements. The settlements themselves are also designed based on state-of-the-art at the time, ideas of how to produce clean sanitary housing. And importantly, they're also the first standardized housing blocks. So this means they're using prefabricated concrete walls, prefabricated cells for some of the rooms. They're collaborating on the large and small scale with industry from walls and rooms to kind of flower storage bins, if that makes sense. So basically all these kitchens were sort of churned out to be exactly the same. You couldn't walk, you know, when you walk into a kitchen showroom now and you choose, oh, I'll have the shaker cupboard doors with that colour and I'll have a granite worktop or a wooden worktop. So there was, couldn't sort of mix and match. It was just standard. You're having this. There were three different types, but they were all standardised. Right. And so for different size apartments, you could choose slightly varying Frankfurt kitchens. But there wasn't like we think of today, you know, where you can go to a kitchen appliance store and choose a lot of yeah. different materials. It wasn't quite like that yet. And in fact, every Frankfurt kitchen would have a set of the same elements. For example, these famous aluminum bins where you could store different types of grains, kind of things that you would use in the kitchen every day, like salt. Yeah. These were produced in collaboration with industry. So that's also really important that now for the first time, architects are collaborating with big kind of new companies to standardize those household objects. And the aluminum bins are often cited the most because they really did enable an easy mechanism. You would pour the salt or 
I don't know, grains into there. You could take them out of the box with where they were in and then like pour them in other containers. They had a handle. So they were a, a unique kind of object. We should have those. That's, they're a good idea. We need those. <laughs> were they a hit? I mean, these kitchens suddenly appeared in very ordinary houses in Germany. What was the reaction to them? Presumably people had never seen anything like them before. Yeah. So they were not a hit. <laughs> no, and she's like, oh God, we've made bloody hundreds of them as well and everyone hates them. <laughs> These objects are cultural constructions, right? And eating and cooking in Germany pre-1920s would have very much taken place in spaces like I mentioned before, like living kitchens, right? Where you would have a space, a corner where some of the cooking would take place, but then there was also a little space where you could read or maybe even a bench where you could lie down and where you could also, and that is critically important, supervise children while they were playing inside the house. So the Frankfurt kitchen completely changed these spatial arrangements and women Women especially found it incredibly hard to enter this, yes, professional space of a kitchen, but then the children had to be in another room because there wasn't really any space for them. There was no space for lying down for a moment and also no sociality in this room, right? People tried to cram their table sets that they brought from maybe another home into the kitchen, but there was no space for it. And so it's really an example of how the adaption of a technology initially fails. Yeah, that's interesting because I kind of imagine like a railway car or something or a galley kitchen that you might get on a boat or in an aeroplane or something where there just isn't space to put your own stuff. This is how it's going to be. Yeah, and the railway car was her decided model, actually. So before designing the Frankfurt kitchen, she studied railway kitchens quite intensively. And so that is the model for the Frankfurt kitchen. One of the things that was really a point of contention for users and inhabitants of the housing of the New Frankfurt was that there were, for the first time, some objects, especially the stove that used gas. So people had to pay gas bills for that, and they hadn't been used to it. And a lot of people wrote letters complaining that there was no longer a way to heat with wood because they had been historically used that if you have to make do for a little bit, you can heat your apartment, you can cook on wood. Wood. And so there was no way anymore to go out, harvest a little bit of wood and do that. No, this had now been implemented in a modern managerial system. Yeah, interesting. She's a fascinating character. So she made these kitchens. They weren't a big hit. Am I right in thinking she was spirited away to the Soviet Union? And I'm not quite sure why or what happened there, but I know she'd spent some time in the Soviet Union designing things as well. What was the circumstances of that? So Ernst May, who had been the chief city planner of the new Frankfurt with about three dozen architects, has realized a number of settlements in the city of Frankfurt. And in 1930, he becomes called and also is really interested how to scale these ideas up 
And so the Soviet Union becomes the place where Ernst May decides he wants to continue these efforts. And we also must not forget this takes place against the backdrop of hyperinflation in Germany and the rise of the far right. And so these progressive architects really think, how can we build a future elsewhere? That's interesting. So the, the political situation in Germany sort of forced them or sort of motivated to go elsewhere. Yeah. So they're really, they see the writing on the wall and they decide it is time to leave Germany. So in the Soviet Union, together with 27 other architects from Frankfurt, they are housed again in a unit that's broadly led by Ernst May, and she becomes the chief person responsible for kindergartens. Her husband, who she met in Frankfurt, Wilhelm Schütte, is kind of the leader of a unit that is predominantly um, occupied with school design. So they're kind of sharing this task of kindergarten design, school design. I'm slightly obsessed by Soviet habitat design. It's a little hobby. Of, it's not a hobby of mine. I'm just like, uh, Galina Balashkova, she's a really interesting designer. And she designed all the interiors. I'm holding up a book to the camera so Essie can see. She did all the design interiors of all the Soviet spacecraft, all the internal spaces, including the kitchens and the sort of living quarters. And they're the most beautiful. And it's funny, actually, we talk about the Frankfurt kitchen being sort of blues and greens. All of her sort of internal spaces and spacecrafts are all kind of blues and greens. But I don't know, but there's an aesthetic. You look at it, you can know exactly where you are and when you are. Yeah, these standard designs, of course, like, first of all, they do relate to one another. But for her, I guess in the Soviet Union, so we're still in the 1930s, right? There are these large collectivization campaigns. And so her task really becomes to think about what does collectivization look like in the kindergarten? She designs factory kindergartens uh, and the elements for that. The more beautiful work of the time, I think, is her independent work with a colleague, Hans Schmidt, where she designed children's furniture. That was a lifelong passion of hers. And it's very colorful. It has some of the insights from the standards, a lot of foldable things again. And yeah. I mean, I hadn't heard of her until we knew you were coming on the show. And I just wonder, like, is her work well known in Germany? Is her work very collectible now? You know, where does she sort of stand in the kind of world of architects, sort of domestic architects particularly? Yeah. I mean, she's very well known in Austria. And I would say that the design of the Frankfurt kitchen is definitely one of the precedents that most architects in training would learn about in a standard survey course. I think for me, what's really important is that her political work and also her advocacy work really as a type of activism, so not design related, let's say, for women is something that remains largely forgotten. So because you asked me in the beginning who she is, I think it's really important for the audiences to know that not only was she an architect, but she was really throughout her life, especially in the post-war years, a women's activist. And during World War II, she was a resistance fighter. And this work in activism, politics and architecture, that carries throughout her life, although, of course, it is shaped by world events. And so for me, it would be really important as more people learn about it, that this design work 
of hers really actually early on is always embedded in a type of political vision and also what the role of women can be in that like world, I guess. When we go into a kitchen showroom now and we look at fitted kitchens and you know, every house pretty much has a fitted kitchen, every apartment in the world has a fitted kitchen. Does the lineage go back to her, go back to the Frankfurt kitchen? I mean, obviously loads of people sort of took on that idea of fitted kitchens, but... Is she the the founding mother of the fitted kitchen? In some ways she is, but I would also say when I teach kitchens, the design of kitchens to the students of architecture, I always say this was a kitchen that thought about the labor of women in the 1920s. So maybe when you enter a fitted kitchen today, don't necessarily just think of like the intellectual histories around these kitchens, but think about who labors in kitchens in the world today. It's a very different world. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> it's a different di- world. Politically, a kitchen is a very different place than a kitchen was politically in the 1930s. I say that as someone who likes to spend a lot of time in the kitchens, but just the way the world works now, the way the divisions of labor are completely different, the way we organize our spaces are completely different. Marguerite Schutlehotsky. You got it. Did I get it right that time? Yep. Okay. She is a new piece in my jigsaw puzzle of design. I love good design. You know, it's terrific. And thank you so much, Essie, for bringing her to our attention. And thank you so much for this wonderful little bit of history, the history of the kitchen. Who knew? Dallas, I really appreciate it. And yeah, I hope that people will enjoy thinking about kitchens, thinking about the labor of kitchens and how actually these strange spaces come into our world and that they often take a century of many, many designers thinking about them. So there we go. That's everything you need to know about The Fitted Kitchen. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to tell your friends and family and subscribe and do all the things that one does. And if you have got a suggestion, like John had for kitchens, get in touch. Uh, We love doing listener suggestions. You can email us at patented at historyhip.com or give me a poke on social media and I will endeavour to pass it on to Freddie, our producer although I have forgotten sometimes, but <laughs> keep, keep prodding me and I'll, I'll definitely do it. Okay, that's it. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.